not only did I get to ask questions, but I almost always got this kind of answer. This is what I believe. This is why I believe that. And you should go talk to that person over there because they have a different answer. And I wasn't expected to accept a single answer, but rather to come to my own conclusions. Welcome back to another episode of Passionate Pursuits, powered by Quarren's Coaching, LLC. Our conversation today centers around creating sacred spaces that we can share in community, whether that is for the purpose of rediscovering ourselves or just being alone together. If you're craving this kind of space where you can retreat to listen to your soul speak, I would encourage you to get in touch with me or another trusted coach so we can walk alongside you and support you in doing this vital inner work. Joining us today from across the country in Bonnie Lake, Washington is Paul Schneider. He is an American Baptist pastor and the founder of the Oasis Project, an interfaith ministry of presence, creating safer, low sensory spaces called Oasis Rooms at conventions for people to recharge, relax, and be restored, and to seek spiritual care if needed. Thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad that I could uh, be here today. Yeah. So we, I suppose we ought to let everyone know how we met, which was uh, last week we were part of the ABHMS, which stands for American Baptist Home Mission Societies, Co-Creators Incubator Cycle 3. So we both submitted an application back in fall of last year, end of summer, early fall, and were selected. And what that means is basically we are taking entrepreneurial, missionally-minded projects to this incubator, and we are... Oh my goodness. We are privileged to be able to work with three incredible mentors, um, a facilitator of the entire program, a wonderful group of co-creators, and it's a year-long incubation period where we're growing our businesses, learning, and so much more. Um, I don't know if you have any other things you'd like to add in there. Yeah. I mean, uh, the program itself, I think, is really amazing. It's it's one that I've been aware of and kind of paying attention to for a long time. I actually applied to and was accepted to the first round, but but the the secular job that I was in at the time wouldn't let me take the kind of time off that I needed in order to be able to attend. Um, and I applied to the second round, and I was rejected uh, on that one. You know, because they were going in a slightly different direction with things, and you know, different groups get get drawn to different things and so i i actually asked like do i apply for this round i asked that very directly um and was told yes you know your persistence is not uh is is not a bad thing it shows that that you really value your idea so um i was glad to be accepted this time and and i'm really excited the group of co-creators are all doing amazing projects really uh beautiful um and transformative things um and then uh yeah the mentors are just i mean top notch couldn't ask for better so yeah absolutely agree so what should people know about you then paul sir so um i am a pastor um and uh i'm a welcoming and affirming pastor i think that's important um and i've learned that if i don't explicitly state that there are people who might not ever actually hear it um they might not assume it um and so uh what that means is that that the church that i pastor and then also my own personal view is that all people are beloved children of god created and becoming who god intended them to be inclusive of their gender identity and sexual orientation whatever that happens to be. Um, and so um, I think that's that's important and something that I've learned that I, I need to lead with because there are people who need to hear that. I am also uh, the Associate Executive Minister of Operations and Administration for the Evergreen Association of American Baptist Churches, um, which is, you know, that's that's my day job now, which I'm I'm glad to say is in the church world. And so when I told my boss I needed time off for the co-creators, his response was, sounds like ministry to me. Let's go. So I was excited about that. You know, uh, I believe in creating spaces where people can ask big questions. 
that's kind of my driving goal. It's where I feel a lot of my call comes from. And uh, and really kind of one of the ways that the Oasis Project formed was because I was part of a community that liked asking big questions, but I wasn't seeing a, any kind of spiritual or recovering um, or, or, or space for renewal within that community. And, and, and so I started trying to figure out how to bring. When you say you were part of a community where people were asking big questions, what community was that? So uh, I was part of the science fiction and fantasy fan community, and particularly the ones that organized around a, a couple of conventions in the Bay Area. And so I was staff on these conventions in other capacities. Um, I worked a couple of different positions within the convention, things from security to um, operations to uh, running the game room, right? Uh, being part of running the game room. And uh, and. So learned a bit about that. And, and and this was this was a community I was part of. And as I was going through seminary, you know, one of the things that I was looking at was, you know, how do I serve my people? And, and you know, these are very much my people. And, and how do I bring something to them, particularly in a community that has often been hurt by the church, um, rejected by the church, and so is, is justifiably suspicious of the church? And so how do I bring who I am in my entirety um, to that space? but then also bring something of value to that space. Mm, I love that question. How do I bring who I am in my entirety to that space, but also bring something of value to that space? I think that's a question that would help a lot of people out if they asked that about themselves. It's one of those, that question, uh, which I don't think I could have had nearly as clearly articulated when I was kind of like struggling to figure it out. Um, hindsight, you know. Uh, but uh, that question has actually been one of those questions that that I think really drives, um, you know, the various things that I find myself doing in ministry and and the the ways that I've answered calls on my life. Yeah, let's let's go that route. Um, how did you discover the call on your life? So, when I was seven, my mom gave me the book Dune. I was already reading uh, science fiction and fantasy, and I was looking for a book to read over the summer. And my mom gave me Dune because the main character was named Paul, and she thought that I would like that. Um, and I did. But Dune is a really complicated book. <laughs> um, and at seven, I didn't get everything out of it that I think I probably could have. But I got two big things out of it. Uh, the first is that water is precious. And the second is that you can make religion say anything you want to. And I was blessed to grow up in a church where I got to ask questions all the time. In fact, I was kind of known for it. When I wasn't asking questions, people were like, is Paul okay? Like, <laughs> um, and, and not only did I get to ask questions, but I almost always got this kind of answer, right? Um, this is what I believe. This is why I believe that, where I learned it, where I read it, who I, you know, what 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 experience taught me this, right? And you should go talk to that person over there because they have a different answer. And I wasn't expected to accept a single answer, but rather to come to my own conclusions, um, which I really appreciated as a kid. Um, but at seven, you know, I wasn't quite asking all of those questions in that way yet. And and so I just went to my pastor and I said, you know, I read this book and it says that you can make religion say anything you want to. And he knelt down and he looked me in the eye and he said, that's right, which is why you have to learn how to read for yourself. And I'm not saying that's why I went to seminary, but that might be why I went to seminary. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I mean, I just, again, I was really blessed. The, the First Baptist Church of Berkeley, which is the church I grew up in, um, which was a charter uh, member of the Association of Welcoming and Affirming Baptists, it was a space where people got to ask big questions. You know, what does it mean for me to be in a relationship with God? What does it mean for me to love the people around me, even when I disagree with them? What does it mean for me to choose to stand on principle on something that's going to get us pushed out of our region, right? Um, and uh, by the time I got to high school, what I noticed was that my friends' faith communities weren't necessarily as accepting of those questions, of, of letting them come to their own answers. They'd ask a question and they'd get the answer, right? And they were told that if they deviated from it, it was a problem. And I just, I, I heard that and it really began to bother me. And uh, that was when I really began to think that God might be calling me to help 
build communities where those questions could be surfaced and where people could explore them. And I was really fortunate that when I went to my pastor to, to, to say, I think God might be calling me, she was very affirming. Her response, in fact, was, yeah, we know. And I said, we, who's we? And she goes, pretty much everybody in the church. <laughs> and I said, how come you didn't tell me? And she goes, it doesn't work like that. I love that. It, it, it really needed to be something I came to on my own, which I don't think means that you have to sit on it. If you see someone who's gifted and maybe hasn't recognized that gifting, you can certainly surface it for them if they if they haven't seen it for themselves. But I think um, I think I'm actually really grateful that they didn't put an expectation on me or anything like that. Um, but but then affirmed me deeply when I when I said, oh, I think this is my call. And uh, I ended up, you know, uh, having some, you know, a different kind of school experience than most. Um, I ended up uh, not doing well in high school, really struggling in a lot of ways, um, kind of trying to bypass that uh, and go directly to college and not really being ready for that and really kind of struggling. Um, and then was blessed to meet my my co-parent, you know. Uh, uh, we got married, we had kids, we had a family, and I kind of went the sort of more normal route, right? I had a job, I had a family, I was doing those things. And I kind of let go of that call, you know, thinking that, that, that if it was really meant to be, it would come back around. And it did. And so uh, in my 30s, I ended up kind of looping back and I ended up going to seminary. Um, and and it was at that point that these communities, these these science fiction and fantasy fan communities that I was already part of, um, I started asking that question, right? Like as I'm going through seminary, how can I serve my people? How do I bring my most authentic self to this community in a way that adds value to that community? That's a beautiful story. And I really appreciate how it's not linear. It was something that was more perhaps spiral, you know, you spiral back around, you come back around and you trust that if that's the direction that your life is supposed to go, that, you know, God or whomever is orchestrating your life is going to make sure that that is held in the forefront. It's really interesting. I'm finding, you know, I'm, I'm in my late thirties and I'm finding that my gosh, no one ever told me about this personal transformation that happens in your thirties. I don't know if you had that experience, but yes, yeah, you're shaking your so. head. So I'm going to let you go with that. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, kind of going back to seminary or going to seminary really was, was the, the going back to school is really what it was for me. Um, that was really that moment of kind of transformation. You know, it was, I had, I had, it was interesting. So I, I, my wife and I were involved in a church. The church was a good deal more conservative than I was. Um, but we were, we felt very supported in that community. Um, and, and so we were, we were, you know, there, our family was loved and supported and, and we were, we were trying to figure things out together. And one of the things that, that my wife said to me was, you know, you really need to be who you're supposed to be. Right. She was really kind of pushing for that because she was, she was seeing how there were certain things that I was doing that weren't bringing life to me, that they weren't energizing to me. And, and, and she was worried that I was going to burn myself out. So I, I, I thought back to this call that I had really felt very strongly as a teenager and still felt um, at that point, but, but didn't really know how I was going to act on it. And I started taking the steps that I needed to, to, to do that. I started meeting with my pastor more regularly. I started doing those things. Um, you know, uh, I implemented some spiritual disciplines into my life um, to sort of help reconnect me and reground me in my faith. And I had, uh, I saw that the, the church that I had grown up in, they're part of an association of churches that was having a conference. And it was the question of the conference was why worship matters, right? And I, and I was like, to me, that, that was asking a question, why does worship matter, right? You know, I, I thought that was really fascinating. And I ended up going to that. Um, and, you know, it was great. The pastor who baptized me, the one who answered that question when I was seven was there. The person who was the pastor of the church that I grew up in, who was like a, a second mom to me and, and had known me since I was two years old, right? She was there. Um, and she taught at 
what was then the American Baptist Seminary of the West and is now the Berkeley School of Theology, the seminary that I ended up graduating from. And she asked if I was still interested in going to seminary. And I said, well, yeah, but I've got all these steps I need to go through and these degrees I need to get. And she said, you just need to apply. It turns out that a lot of these seminaries, um, not all of them, but but ATS allows seminaries to accept a certain number of students every year who don't necessarily have the um, academic degrees, but who are actively engaged in ministry and are above a certain age into their programs. And so um, I was one of two students who was accepted that year under that under that plan um, and, um, you know, really kind of found the seminary experience just fascinating and transforming and and really loved that whole process of learning to articulate what it is that I believe, learning to question the things that I had been taught and had kind of assumed were the way that things were, um, and then learning to engage with others in profoundly respectful ways, even while we had deep theological disagreements, right? Um, and and finding those spaces. And I really dug into the academic side um, and loved it and 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 everything. But I always felt that, that, you know, one of my callings was to be a pastor, right? A church pastor. And 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 so um it was actually in my final year of seminary that we ended up moving to Washington. And so I did my final year of seminary, uh, which was in from 2016 to 2017, um, I ended up doing that remotely using Zoom um, and really ended up getting um, kind of a really significant benefit out of that in that um, uh, a few years later, when everybody started using Zoom, I kind of had a head up on it, right? Um, but but at the time, it was a way for me to engage with my classes and be able to do that. And then I was traveling down to California on a regular basis. And really, we moved to Washington because my wife uh, expressed it as she felt like she was called to be up here. This was where she felt God was calling her. And so when she said that to me, I said, great, let's let's figure that out. Let's make that happen. And she was actually kind of startled. And she was like, that easy? And I said, well, you listened to me when I said I had to go to seminary and I was answering God's call on my life. It seems like it would be awfully selfish of me not to listen to you when you're saying this is where you feel God's call on your life is. Um. And so that's that's actually why we ended up moving to Washington. And uh, not long after I graduated, I got called to be the interim pastor of Burien Community Church in Burien, Washington, which is a little town that's kind of wedged between the SeaTac Airport and the Sound up here. Um, and uh, that was I was originally called as as interim, um, and uh, and then in 2019 they called me as their settled pastor. Um, and so I've been serving there ever since. Um, and, you know, it took it took a while because we we had to have the real conversations and ask the big questions and so on. But we did eventually, just this last year, become a welcoming and affirming congregation. That's awesome. What a journey. I'm just noticing how interesting it is the similarities between your acceptance into seminary and that call and then your experience with the incubator and those years of sort of, you know, being in process and application and having been accepted and not being able to go and then not accepted. And then, you know, should I apply again? And it's like, it's like, God's just got these doors for you. And he's like, all right, when it's time, when it's time, Paul, here's the door when it's time. That's so, it's so neat the way that works. And it's, I think it's different in each person's life but it's really fascinating to see because I think seeing those patterns can help cue us into the way in which God works in our own lives as well, even if it is different. Absolutely. And, and, and so the Oasis project really came out of, like I said, I was in seminary, I was looking at my community and I was like, how can I serve? And, and what I noticed was I, I had found that there were pastors who were part of the community, but they kind of kept it quiet for the most part, right? Um, because again, this is a community that is justifiably suspicious of the church. One of my mentors, the Reverend Randy Smith, um, who had been part of these communities for decades um, and uh, regularly did services um, for Baycon, for Westercon, and then for even Worldcon, which is the World Science Fiction and Fantasy Convention, where they give out the Hugo Awards every year. Um, and, and, and so, you know, 
he did these services as part of what he felt his call was. And one of the things he said was the antagonism that you find in the church toward the church in this community is almost always because questions were silenced. One of the things that I think science fiction and fantasy really does is it asks big questions, questions of meaning, questions of morality, questions of reality. And people who are reading that and then going to churches where questions are not welcomed will get shut down. And then often that can lead, not universally, but it can lead to people rejecting the church and having to step away from it for their own health and well-being. So that's what I was noticing was that was that that was not a space where where the church was really welcome in a lot of ways. Like the the Sunday service was a fairly small gathering. Uh, the people who showed up were were those who felt comfortable entering that space. And uh, again, unless you knew that Randy was a pastor, um, you know, you you didn't know that you could go to him um, if, if you were having that moment of spiritual crisis. And I saw people having those moments of spiritual crisis, of just being overwhelmed from being at a convention, of people suddenly realizing that they have a community when they thought they were the only person, right? Um, people... Um, People just going through the the difficulties of life, right? Breaking up with significant others, and you know, uh, struggling to figure out, you know, what what it is for them to attend a convention without a loved one who passed away in between this convention and the last, um, those kinds of things. And and so, I thought, what if there was a space for that? What if there was a space where people could be able to I'm not an extrovert. I just play one on TV. That's that's what I say. I have a lot of um, people facing jobs, but when it comes down to it, like eventually I reach the threshold and I just kind of shut myself off from the world. And I've learned ways to do that where I can do that even in the middle of a loud and busy space. But not everyone can. And 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 I certainly find it easier when there's a space that's held for that. And so how did I, you know, what I wanted to do was build a space where people would be able to step away and and find that that space that they needed to sort of in the midst of all of the busyness and all of the too many people and all of that, people like me who needed that space to be able to step away would be able to find that. And then also um, have it be a space where I was explicitly a clergy person. And so someone who was having that moment of crisis knew that they would be able to talk to me about whatever was going on with them, and that that would not only be something that would be held in confidence, but would also be, um, you know, with someone who who might be able to help them through this whole thing, right? Because sometimes you you talk to the people around you, and they're 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 just at a loss. But one of the benefits of seminary is I received some instruction about about how to help people in those moments of difficulty, right? The pastoral care um, that I can offer. Um, and, uh, and because, again, it's a space that was deeply suspicious of the church, one of the things that I really wanted was for it to be an interfaith ministry and to make it explicitly clear that it's not a space for proselytizing, that we serve people of all faiths and none, and and that our team really represented more than just sort of the, um, if you will, the Abrahamic traditions. Um, nothing wrong with those traditions. I'm part of of them. I love them. But uh, but but there's a lot more faith traditions out there, um, and so. It kind of evolved as I was developing the idea. I got the convention to sign on board um, as they knew me. Um, <laughs> I think that helped. I was part of the community. Um, and uh, and then I was able to begin building out this um, in large part because I mentioned the idea in a staff meeting and I had someone come up to me and say, hey, I think my partner would be really interested in what you're doing. And she's not here, but, um, and it turns out that the partner in question was someone whose blog I had already visited for information oh, on neat. sort of polytheist conversations and so on. Um, and so that's how Ember came on board. And, and as other people came on board, they added to the idea and they helped build it out. And so the Oasis has really evolved beyond just that space that I was thinking of and turned into something more rich and more full because of that openness to other ideas and other faith traditions and, and so on. And so we work very intentionally and deliberately at making sure that there are um, 
you know, spiritual tools available from uh, religious texts um, that we uh, that we make available to um, meditation aids and things like that. But then also we just have things like coloring pages um, and and stuff like that for people to access while they're in the room. Um, and then we we really were intentional about thinking our way through what is a space that is welcoming, um, but also not a sensory overload look like, sound like, feel like, right? Um, and uh, and so that's kind of how the Oasis evolved over time. And it ended up being my master's project for seminary. So this was this was the, the project that I put together um, for my master's of divinity. And then when I was ordained, Randy Smith, my mentor, um, delivered one of my charges um, as, as part of my ordination. And, and he charged me to continue doing work and ministry in the fan community, which I've been blessed to do so far and plan to continue until they close the box. That is such a neat story. I I have so many questions that I thought of as you were talking. So let's just, let's just, we'll work through these one at a time. Um, The first thing I thought, and I don't know if it's more of a question or just an observation, but I don't, I don't think that many people, myself included, thought of seminary as a place where questions were encouraged. I think I would have based on my very uh, conservative Christian past and upbringing, I think I would have thought of it as a place where like doctrine was delivered. (laughs) So that's really interesting to me that, that that was part of it. And it's, and I think that's so valuable. And another thing that I've observed, at least just having been a part of American Baptist life now for the past few years is that, I keep thinking I'm going to get to the point where one of my questions or questioning gets me like shown the exit door and it hasn't happened. (laughs) Weirdly enough, right? Right. You know, I can sit down with my head pastor and have a discussion over, over a latte about, um, you know, what do we think about the afterlife? What do we think about reincarnation? What do we think about, is there actually a heaven or is the kingdom of God here right now? And explore those questions without having to come to an agreement or a shared truth or anything. It's just an exploration. And I love that. I really appreciate that. And that is something that I have only found thus far in terms of in the Christian tradition, in the American Baptist part of the Christian tradition. I think that's really one of the strengths of, of the Baptist tradition. And, and, and I say the Baptist tradition because a lot of this is based on historic Baptist principles that unfortunately not all Baptists live into, even American Baptists all of the time. <laughs> but a lot of that comes down to this idea of freedom, soul freedom, Bible freedom, church freedom, religious freedom, right? These are really, really important Baptist concepts. Um, and, and you know, they've been around since Roger Williams founded kind of the first Baptist church in America, which you can go find in Rhode Island. It exists. Um, and the, the pastor is uh, an awesome, amazing woman, um, Jamie Washam, Reverend Dr. Jamie Washam. But I mean, you know, these are these are sort of at the core of what it means to be Baptist. Every congregation associates freely. They choose to be parts of the regions, which choose to be part of the denomination, right? Um, and and then people come to different conclusions about these things based on the work that they're doing in their own lives, their own experience, and the way that they read scripture. Um, and, you know, the American Baptist tradition ranges from just as conservative as some of the most conservative Baptists out there to, um, I, I would say, fairly free-willing liberal, um, you know, sort of almost Unitarian. And the fact that we have such a breadth of tradition is one of the things that I love about this denomination I grew up in. I feel really fortunate because I am that guy who asks questions and loves questions. And I feel like I was born into the right church because if I hadn't been there, I don't know that, I don't know that I would have really remained Christian. Um, And so I'm, I'm always grateful when someone engages me in religious conversation, when they have um, had a negative experience with the church. And I never want to be that person who says to someone, you have to go back to church. No. I mean, 
I do believe that there is value in religious community, but I think there are lots of ways to find that community and the church is one of them. Speaking of religious community, what is church? Not its best. Church is a collection of believers, followers of Jesus Christ, who are trying to live out that gospel with each other and with the world around them. That can be interpreted in lots of different ways. And I think it's actually really important that it's interpreted in lots of different ways, because not every person is going to resonate with every community or with every iteration of the church, right? Um, and and I kind of love the fact that there are different denominations and different versions, even within our own denomination, even within the evergreen region, you know, the, there are palpable differences between one church and a church even just a couple of blocks away. They're both American Baptist churches, both evergreen churches, even both the same, you know, kind of ethnic background, right? but very, very different churches. And I think that's beautiful. Um, you know, we weren't all created the same and thanks be to God for that. I mean, you know, and, and um, so at its best, that's what church is. And unfortunately, I think that a lot of churches struggle to live into that. Even the ones who seem to be doing right, trust me, they're struggling to live into that. Yeah. Another thing that I've noted that is, very noticeably not present within my current community, my current church community, is the idea that, oh my goodness, we're walking around in this world of sinners and we need to make sure that we save them all. Um, that is very notably not a part of our church life. What is, is social justice ministry. But what isn't is the idea that if they do not claim Jesus as their savior, we must save them. So what do you make of that? So I think some churches have come to an understanding of an individual salvation, right? It's all about you and your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But I think something that was part of the early church and something that a lot of churches these days are recognizing is that salvation is not an individualistic proposition. It's a communal proposition. And so if your salvation isn't bound up in the salvation of your neighbor, maybe saved isn't actually what you're looking for. What you're looking for is righteousness. And when it comes down to it, however good I seem to be, however, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just a person with my own foibles, with my own sins, with my own flaws. And so righteousness is not something that I would ever want to claim as my personal mantle, right? As the thing that makes me, you know, um, the authority you should listen to. What I hope makes me someone you would want to listen to is the way that I live out love in the world. And sometimes that looks like standing up for justice. Sometimes that looks like just being with someone as they grieve. Sometimes that looks like being the person who answers that kid's question, that little kid's question, honestly as you can in the moment. And I think always it's allowing room for growth and for change and for transformation and, and acknowledging that even the people who I disagree with the most are still beloved children of God. I think that's so important for people to hear who may enter one of these oasis rooms and for them to understand that I am not that person who is there to, you know, offer some sort of salvation to you. I'm just there to share an experience of, you know, what can love look like in this moment and what do you need and how can I create a space in which you can receive something that is necessary for that need. It's just such a different view. It's it's such a different action. It's it's a much more transformative love than than that this this you know go seek and save and convert and you know 
um, that we're that we're so used to hearing from not just Christians, from from many different religious traditions that think, oh my goodness, this is the only way or else. And I don't think we serve an only way or else God. I think we serve a God who loved so much that God loved us into being. That's just my point of view. Absolutely. One of the most powerful quotes, and I don't remember where it came from, um, but one of the things that really kind of struck me um, when I was in seminary was someone pointed out to me, God loved so much that God refused to be God without you, without humanity, without the world, without creation. Um, That is a really profound thing um, and something that I don't forget. Um, and and work really hard to not forget, especially when I'm around people I disagree with. <laughs> yes, that's the truth. Yeah, I have to, at this point in my life, I view disagreement and, you know, differing pathways as all experiences that are necessary, even though that can be a very hard thing to incorporate. But we have to. Yeah. Somehow we have to. Okay. Here's something that I'm curious about. What is maybe the most surprising thing that you have learned being present in an Oasis room? So there are people, you know, there are chaplains and so on who are out there who have really learned the art of creating a space. And one of the things that I learned in the Oasis room that I thought was really interesting is that sometimes my role is to do nothing. I remember at one point, uh, someone came in, they were brought there by a couple of their friends and they were having a a panic attack. Real anxiety was, was hitting them and their friends were already doing everything that they needed to do in order to help this person through that. What they needed was the space to have it. And so my job in that moment was to simply let them be. I certainly, you know, was ready if they did need me, but honestly, they were handling it. And being willing to just let the space be the space, right? To let them do the thing and to do nothing. Um, because I'm a I'm I'm definitely a do something guy, right? I, I love fixing things. Um, I occasionally get deluded into thinking that one can fix people. Um, you know, I I want to help a situation. But that was one of those moments where I went, I don't, I don't need to help this situation. This situation is already in hand. Um one of the most challenging things about doing that, about doing the oasis, is that uh I'm not in my normal pastoral role where I see someone weekly or at least monthly, right? (laughs) And I'm able to follow up with them and make sure they're okay. Instead, I'm in this very limited role. I get to see them for a few hours, maybe for a few days at this one event. And then I might never, ever see them again. And I was, I was fortunate that my seminary, um, the, the professor of pastoral care at the seminary, uh, Reverend Dr. Peter Yuichi Clark of Blessed Memory, um, was really, really helpful in helping me think through my oasis and really, really instrumental in um, sort of teaching me a different way to connect uh, in those environments. Uh, Among his many uh, roles and talents, uh, he was the director of spiritual care for the entire University of California, San Francisco medical system, which included the Children's Hospital in Oakland. And there were a couple of hospitals in San Francisco. and, and, And I mean, you know, he was just... He was one of the most warm, kind, generative presences I've ever been around. It was interesting when I brought the Oasis to him because we had a really interesting cons- uh, conversation about it because I was I was still thinking my way through the Oasis. And he said, well, it makes sense that a space like this is needed. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, there used to be these things called pilgrimages, right? And people would go, they would travel a long distance, they would get there, they would have this religious experience, and then they would return home. Well, what's a convention? 
You leave your home, you travel somewhere, you have a literally otherworldly experience, and then you return home. He says, the difference I see between conventions and pilgrimages is that at a pilgrimage site, you have a whole bunch of people who speak the language of religious encounter to help you process that experience. That a convention, nobody's speaking that language. And uh, and so that was one of the things that that I I felt like I I'm able to bring into that space, right? Um, and not just me, but all of the Oasis staff who are part of things. Um, and uh, it's 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 that question of you know we're we're part of these communities, right? Um, I share the common stories, be that Star Wars or The Hobbit or Dune or whatever it might be, right? We we share that common language and those stories. Those inside jokes, the memes, you know, all of those things are part of the shared language and culture that already exists. And what I also bring is a language and an experience of religious community and Christian tradition that I can interpret for that space and and bring what I think is perhaps most useful and best and the best expression of loving people in that moment that I can Um and none of that involves beating them over the head with my Bible. That's wonderful. I'm. I wish. <laughs> I wish I were part of this community right now because I would love to have this experience that you're talking about. I mean, I've been to conventions before, but never, never a, never like a fan convention or a, you know, what you're speaking of. I've been to conventions, religious conventions, uh, you know, for work or or whatever. But boy, does that sound wonderful right about now. One of the things that I'm working on with the Oasis actually is expanding it beyond the fan conventions. I mean, we started in fan conventions just because that was the community I was already in. Um, but we've already expanded. We were at Between the Veils, which is a polytheistic convention that happens in the San Francisco Bay Area um, in August. We were there last year. Um, I actually wasn't able to go down there personally, but my Oasis team did the whole thing there. and were just awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that professional conventions could benefit from a space like this. And, and you know, so one of the things that I'm beginning to think through and one of the things that I'm hoping that the co-creators will help me think through is, um, like, I, I conceived of this in this space where I'm this sort of person who speaks both of these languages and I'm the uh, interpreter or I bring something from both of these communities that I'm part of and that I love and, and, and try and, and bring them together. But, but I do think that this space has value even for communities that I'm not part of. So what does the Oasis look like at a neurologist's convention? I'm not a neurologist. <laughs> I don't speak that language. I don't have that experience. But I do think that the space would still have value even there. And so how do I learn how to speak that story um, in a way that 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 even, you know, this this other type of convention would hear it and go, oh, that could be a space that would be very beneficial to us. That's one of the things I'm hoping to learn with the co-creators. Yeah, I mean, my my first thought is we're all human. So there's a shared experience, no matter what. And I would see great value in that being present in all of those spaces. Absolutely. And I do hope that that is the direction you go. Uh, so we come to a time in each of my interviews where I throw five random rapid fire questions at you and you respond with the first thing that comes to mind. So uh, if you're ready, we will take off. Sounds good. All right. Number one, what is suffering? Suffering is pain. Suffering is sorrow. Suffering is disconnection. Um, it's, it's, it's that distance sometimes out of necessity, but often uh, unintentionally between ourselves and others and between ourselves and God that, um, that can become a self-reinforcing cycle if we let it. What's your favorite historical event? We have so many pseudo-historical events that immediately come to mind. Um, Go for it. I, I love the stories of King Arthur. 
um, and 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 really, you know, kind of all of the different iterations of them. I, I kind of learned the the Howard Pyle version of King Arthur when I was very young. My great aunt was a librarian, and she she handed me those books, and 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 I loved that. Um, but but that was a very uh, you know interesting version of King Arthur where. Uh, but but you know you trace the legends back and and you get this King Arthur who's probably fifth sixth century in England right and probably never actually existed is probably an amalgamation of several different different people but this idea that people cling to of this place where justice is a value where love is a value where hope is espoused even in the midst of the greatest struggle and suffering and everything. I mean, it just, it inspires me. It's one of those things that I love. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a big King Arthur fan. I love those stories. Um, I love some of the ways that the stories are being retold now in, in ways that don't, um, that are less patriarchal, <laughs> less, less, you know, uh, lift up the idea that, 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 um, everyone participated in this in really, really powerful and significant ways. And also, bring out the kind of flawed and human nature of everyone involved, which were all part of the stories from the beginning to one degree or another. What brings you joy? I, um, I am in some ways a really simple soul when it comes to that being out in nature, um, hiking, that kind of thing really brings me a lot of joy. Um, in some ways, that's something I'm working on rediscovering because for a long time, I I just, I didn't pursue that much. Um, and then reading. I love reading. I read all kinds of different stuff, but I particularly love reading fiction. Um, there's something about these stories that we tell that matters so much that I think is really significant. And, you know, I have a certainly a preference for science fiction and fantasy, but it's not the only fiction I read. Who do you find fascinating? There are definitely the people who first come to mind are, are my friends who are able to just like gain energy from being around other people. I'm so much of an introvert myself that I'm sort of like, how do you go to a party and come back more energized? Like, I can't wrap <laughs> my head around that. I just, I don't get it. Um, and, uh, but so, so, so to some degree, they fascinate me because it's, it's something I'm not. But one of the things that I really love is that, you know, having conversations with them and exploring with them about why it is that they get energized, about why it is that those connections really matter. I, I, I again find that it's about community. It's about shared experience. It's about love. It's about, uh, connection um and and that and that those are the same things that inspire me as well i just also need my own space where my connection is is being made more deeply with myself um because when i'm making that connection outward it almost feels like there's a string right and so the more of that connection that i make outward especially when i'm doing a lot of it all at once um it feels like i'm pulling away from that connection to myself and so that's where reclaiming that doing the reading, spending the time, you know, in nature, those kinds of things help me sort of reground that. Really cool image you just presented there. Where do you hope to be in 10 years? I mean, you know, I would love for the Oasis to be, uh, you know, a, an organization that's out there that's making a difference um, in all kinds of conventions and all kinds of convention spaces. I would be remiss if I said uh, that the Oasis is the only thing of its kind. It's not. There are organizations that that come at something like this from a secular tax. Um, Take This comes to mind, which was founded by a therapist whose brother was part of the video game industry and um, committed suicide over the incredible pressures that the designers and, and people who are part of that industry um, feel. And one of the things that they do is that a lot of these video game uh, conventions, they create a space much like the Oasis, a quieter space where people can go that's not as stimulating and loud because however stimulating a fan convention is, trust me, I've been to a couple of these video game conventions. They are much more so. And so those spaces are really valuable. Um, but I mean, you know, so so I, I, I think there's a balance to be found there though. And, and you know, 
I certainly hope that I'm still working with fan communities um, and 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 helping there. Um, and you know, I'd love to work with all kinds of different fan communities. I'm not afraid of furries or <laughs> any of those people because I know them. You know, I've come to see them and see the kind of good and the love that they exhibit in the world. Um, and then. You know, one of my goals with the Oasis is to build out a series of Oasis teams so that we have a West Coast team, a Midwest team, and an East Coast team so that we're not all having to fly across the country back and forth for every convention, but rather we have people who are local to the area, which I think is actually kind of important for conventions. Um, and 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 then also have built out maybe a training program for being able to help people implement Oasis or Oasis-type spaces um, even if we can't show up at their conventions. Wonderful. I think that is the perfect segue into if any of our listeners would like to connect with you or perhaps get involved with the Oasis, then what is the best way for them to do that? Sure. If you want to find out more about the Oasis, we do have a website. Uh, it's going to be undergoing some revision soon. But for now, oasisforconventions.org is the website. Um, and, you know, you can find some good in information there about the conventions that we've that we've attended in the past, about what the basics of an Oasis room are. And then even there are some blog posts there from different staff members about why they got involved with the Oasis and, and, and what the Oasis means to them. Um, and then uh, you can also connect with us on on Twitter at Oasis, the number four, and then conventions with no vowels, C-N-V-N-T-N-S, Oasis for conventions uh, on Twitter. Um, and, and that Twitter, I have to admit, it tends to be fairly inactive uh, unless we're at a convention, at which point it becomes one of our primary methods of communicating. Hey, this is the room we're in. Come find us. Hey, you know, and, and so... Um, particularly as we come up on convention season later in the spring and summer, that that Twitter feed will become a little bit more active. Um, and then if you want to email me um, with any questions, you can certainly do so. Uh, and that's Paul J. Schneider. That's S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R-I-I at gmail.com. Perfect. And as we always do, I will put all of those into the show notes so people can access them very easily. Again, yeah, thank you so much for joining me. This was a really fascinating conversation. I appreciate your time that you've spent with us. Thank you, Bridget. I mean, it was it was a delight getting to know you a little bit better over the co-creators time. And I was really appreciative of the invitation to be able to join you here. Um, and I've been listening through your interviews and just really found them to be insightful and helpful. Um, and so I'm hoping that that this interview is helpful to someone as well. Thank you. I really appreciate the feedback on that. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Passionate Pursuits, powered by Corns Coaching, LLC. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now. This show is completely ad-free, so if you gain value from listening, please leave a review and share with a friend. I am so grateful for you. Thank you.